Let's get straight to the point. You want to grow your portfolio to deal with the rising cost of inflation to pay off your debt or your mortgage, pretty much anything standing in the way of you and financial freedom, right? Well, with Yahoo Finance, you can get access to the news, data, and tools that you need in order to help you reach that financial freedom. And when it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. And now you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses. Yahoo Finance. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination. That's yahoofinance.com. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. Today's podcast is sponsored by First Leaf. First Leaf is a better way to discover wines that you'll love at a fraction of the price. You can save time, money, and stress. So join today and you'll get six bottles of wine for just $29.95, including free shipping. So go to tryfirstleaf.com gold. On Friday, we had a sharp sell-off in both gold and silver. Gold plunged by just over $40 an ounce, I think $41. It settled around $17.63. Silver, an even sharper 77 cent sell-off, settling at $24.37. Also, we had a sharp rise in the U.S. dollar and a rise in yields on longer-term U.S. Treasuries. In fact, the dollar index had one of its best days in memory, up about 0.54. Dollar index settling back at 92.78. And the yield on the 10-year U.S. Treasury back up to 1.29. And on the 30-year Treasury, 1.934. Still very, very low rates, uh, but not quite as low as they were the week before. The catalyst for all of these sharp moves on Friday was the release of a stronger than expected July employment report. Now, when you actually look at the report, yes, it was slightly stronger than expected, but not nearly strong enough to justify the moves that we saw in gold, the dollar, and the bond market. In fact, if you actually look at the employment number, but also look at all the other economic data that came out not only on the day, but on the week, all of this data continues to support a weak U.S. dollar and a stronger gold price, but the markets are not trading on fundamentals. Fundamentals have nothing to do with this market. This market is based on hype, based on momentum, and it's based on algorithms. And when I'm talking about algorithms, these are computer programs where markets basically are on autopilot once certain information is fed into these algorithms and they just spit out a trade. And, you know, there's an old saying about garbage in and garbage out. And that's what these programs are. It is garbage in. And so that's exactly what's coming out because they're programmed that whenever a number comes out that is stronger, an economic number than expected, well, you buy U.S. dollars and you sell gold. Or whenever somebody from the Federal Reserve talks about interest rates going up or policy being normalized, you buy the dollar and sell gold without any real rational understanding of what these numbers mean and the bigger picture of what's actually going on. Because in the long run, the fundamentals are the only thing that matter. And that's why in the long run, we're going to see a big drop in the dollar and a surge in the price of gold. But let me start by getting into the weeds on the job number. Now, first of all, the expectation was for a very strong number. They were looking for 900,000 
jobs created in the month of July. And this despite the fact that the ADP jobs report, which came out earlier in the week on Wednesday, was a big disappointment. They were looking for 700,000 jobs there, and we only ended up with 330,000. So a huge miss on the ADP number. But despite that big miss, everybody was pretty much shrugging it off. In fact, I was hearing whisper numbers as high as 1.2 million jobs being created in July. So when the report came out at 943,000, sure, it was a beat, but it wasn't that significant. Although there was an upward revision to the prior month. That month was originally reported at 850,000 and they revised it up to 938. So when you add that beat into it, it was a little bit of a bigger overall beat on what was being expected. But when you think about the dynamics of what was going on in July and even partially in June, you have an explanation for these numbers that really has nothing to do with some kind of big surge in the underlying strength of the economy. What happened in June was that a significant number of generally red states decided to deny their unemployed residents the extra $300 a week federal unemployment supplement. So even though the supplement was there by federal law, the state said, we're not going to allow our residents to receive it. Now, why is that? Well, because a lot of these states understood that one of the big problems in the labor market was the government had made it too lucrative not to return to work. And businesses were hurting because they couldn't find workers to fill their job openings. And one of the main reasons was that the government had given them a much better deal to remain unemployed and get an extra $300 on top of the unemployment that they were entitled to under state law. So these states said, you know what? We're not going to allow these emergency unemployment benefits that were supposedly there, you know, during the days of COVID when everybody was, you know, in lockdown. And so they said, we're not going to allow this. Now, it should not be a surprise to people that once the government stopped paying people all this money not to work, that more people would decide to return to work. And that's what happened because the payments stopped in mid-June. So it was in late June and July that a lot of people that were highly incentivized not to work all of a sudden had a much bigger incentive to work because their unemployment payments just dropped by $300 a week. And so that lowered the bar by which people would judge the relative cost benefit of taking a job. Because when you take a job, you get the benefit of more money but you lose two things. You lose the leisure of not having to work and the enjoyment that comes with just having a vacation, but then you also give up your unemployment benefits. But when those unemployment benefits were $300 a week less, well, then the people weren't giving up as much money by going back to work. So that's what happened. That in fact, if you look at the numbers, about a million people re-entered the workforce, went back to work in July. And all this does is provide more evidence to what obviously was common sense that paying people not to work results in people not working. And when you stop paying people not to work, they go back to work. So that's what's going on. It's not like we have some real strength in the U.S. economy that all of a sudden we created all these jobs. The jobs were there, just that nobody wanted them. Now, without the incentive to stay at home, people decided to accept the jobs that had been out there all along. Now, I think the bigger beat, though, where the numbers came out much better than expectations was the unemployment rate, which really plunged. It was at 5.9% in June, and the expectation was for a drop to 5.7. Instead, we went all the way down to 5.4. That is a big drop in unemployment claims, again, makes sense. We're not paying people all this money not to work, so they're choosing to go back to work, and so the unemployment rate went down. In fact, it's below the low end of estimates, which was 5.6%. So I think that number was more of a shocker than the 943,000 jobs. But you know, despite this big movement of workers back to work, the labor force participation rate did not do much. I mean, it went up from 61.6 to 61.7. 
But that is not that big a move, and it still represents a pretty low level for labor force participation. You know, looking at the makeup of the jobs, not that many jobs in manufacturing, pretty much exactly what the consensus had been looking for. They were looking for 26,000 manufacturing jobs. We beat with just 27,000. So the strength is not in manufacturing, which it never is. The strength was in the service sector, which of course are the lower paying jobs that people were disincentivized from taking because of the $300 a week supplement. And once that supplement was removed, well, a lot of these people decided that these low paying service sector jobs were at least better than their normal unemployment benefits. Although the prior month's manufacturing number was revised up quite a bit from 15,000 to 39,000. But I think another factor that was significant, at least when it comes to the dollar and gold, was the average hourly earnings, which went up quite a bit more, I think, overall than had been estimated. In the month of June, average hourly earnings were reported as up 0.3. That was revised to up 0.4. The same type of beat when it comes to the current month. They were looking for 0.3. We got 0.4. So both June and July increase in average hourly earnings up to 0.4 in both months versus 0.3 in both months, which had been expected. And the year-over-year increase in average hourly earnings, and this is the big number, it was 3.6% in June. It was expected to go up to 3.8 for July. Instead, June revised up to 3.7. And the most recent number now for July, 4% year-over-year increase in average hourly earnings. Now that is, I think, a big number because it's causing a lot of people to think, okay, earnings are up, right? That's more pressure on inflation. Unemployment is down, it's back down at 5.4. We are now getting closer to the conditions under which the Federal Reserve has already said that it will start to raise interest rates and shrink its balance sheet. And therefore this report, right, taken in totality, would supposedly bring us closer to the point where the Federal Reserve is going to start to tighten up on the monetary spigots, take the punch bowl away. And so it's this anticipation of the tightening process happening sooner rather than later that is the real reason that you saw the big bid in the dollar and the sell-off in gold. Despite the fact that none of this really matters because the Fed is just bluffing about what conditions would be necessary for it to tighten monetary policy because I don't think the conditions exist that would actually cause the Fed to do that because I think the Federal Reserve knows that if they do anything with respect to actually tightening, they can talk about tightening because that doesn't actually tighten. I mean, in a way, if people prepare for the tightening because you're talking about it to a degree that's tightening, but it doesn't impact the markets anywhere near as much as actually tightening would be. And by the way, just because wages are up 4% year over year, it doesn't mean that American workers are earning more money. They're not, because even the official measures of consumer prices are way above 4% year over year. And of course, the unofficial actual rate at which consumer prices are rising is far greater than what the government statistics you know, will acknowledge. But even with those government statistics, real wages are falling. A nominal wage hike of 4% still means that after inflation, you're earning less money. So real wages are declining. They are not going up. But again, this report, this jobs report does not indicate some booming economy that is going to allow the Federal Reserve to remove all of the monetary supports that currently exist. In fact, absent those monetary supports, the numbers would not be this good. The numbers would be a lot worse if we didn't have all the help from the Fed. And the Fed knows that if they remove that help, then everything is going to implode that's been built on the foundation of artificially low interest rates and quantitative easing. In fact, more evidence of just how much the economy is depending on all this cheap money was revealed later in the day. The same day, we got the consumer credit numbers for June. And the expectation was for a 20.8 
billion dollar rise in consumer credit. And that followed the big jump in May. It was $35.3 billion in May, which I think at the time maybe was an all-time record. And that was actually revised up to $36.7 billion. So that broke the record. But then the record was actually broken again when the June number was released because it wasn't $20.8 billion. It was $37.6 billion. Not only much higher than had been expected, but actually higher than the previous month. So instead of a big drop, we had an even bigger increase. So this is huge back-to-back increases in consumer credit, where consumers are going out and borrowing money on their credit cards. They're borrowing money to buy cars or for student loans. In fact, we now have credit standing at an all-time record high. I mean, it was almost up 10% on the month. But consumers now have $4.319 trillion of debt. And obviously, if consumers were not able to borrow all this money, then they couldn't have spent, right? They couldn't have bought all this stuff, but for their ability to borrow money. And the only reason they can borrow money is because the Fed is supplying it. The Fed is making all this money available. It's holding interest rates artificially low so that people can pay the interest on all this money that they're borrowing. And that is what's helping to create a lot of these service sector jobs that would not exist but for the ability of Americans to go deeper into debt. And by the way, when we talk about the $4.319 trillion of consumer debt, right? we're not even talking about all the debt that Americans have. We're not talking about their mortgage debt. And you know, more importantly, we're not talking about anybody's share of the national debt, right? Because every American has a share of the U.S. national debt, which is, you know, over $28.5 trillion because it's the American citizens that are ultimately on the hook for that debt or more precisely, the American taxpayers. So obviously, if you're just on welfare and you're not paying any taxes, then the national debt doesn't burden you. But if you're one of the Americans who actually has a job and has taxes coming out of their pay, well, you're on the hook for your share of the national debt. You have to pay that back because the national debt represents future taxation, not current taxation, but future taxation. And of course, the way the tax is going to be borne by most Americans is going to be through inflation. It's the inflation tax that is going to hit the average American, and that's how he's going to have to pay his share of the national debt. But if the government was going to honestly repay the national debt, then Americans would be on the hook for a much larger debt than what is being officially reported. You know, we've all been there. You're standing in the wine aisle. You're staring at the shelves. You've got no idea what you want to buy. Is it a California red or maybe one from Oregon, something organic, something imported? Maybe just you pick the one that has a really nice label. Well, thanks to First Leaf, there's now a better way to discover the wines that you enjoy at a fraction of the prices that you'll find in the stores. First Leaf is a fully customizable wine club that sends curated boxes of wine that are perfect for you directly to your house. And they have more award-winning wines than anyone else. With First Leaf, there's no guesswork, no misguided recommendations from a store employee who really doesn't know what you like. And there's no frustration on your part. Each wine shipment is entirely customized to your unique palate and preferences. And unlike big box wine memberships, First Leaf uses a -a one-of-a-kind algorithm and your feedback to curate future wine recommendations. The more wines you taste and review, the better the shipments get. In fact, I just ordered my first shipment of wine. I'm looking forward to experience the taste. First Leaf works directly with the world's best winemakers, not only to find the best wines available, but to pass on the savings to you. Savings as much as 60% off the retail price. So save time, money, and stress with First Leaf, the wine club designed especially for you. So join today and you'll get six bottles of wine for just $29.95, including free shipping. So go to tryfirstleaf.com slash gold. That's six bottles of wine for just $29.95, free shipping at tryfirstleaf.com slash gold. 
You know, in fact, even Democratic Senator Joe Manchin was in the news talking about the inflation tax. I like the fact that Manchin is referring to inflation as a tax, and he is basically calling on the Federal Reserve to stop the stimulus because he is saying that it will cause an inflation problem. And of course, Manchin is correct, except he is underestimating the degree of the problem. I mean, the inflation train has already left the station. That's the problem. It's not that the Fed may cause an inflation problem. They already have caused an inflation problem, and that problem is going to get much worse. And of course, what Joe Manchin doesn't really understand is that if the Fed were to do what he is calling for it to do, he is underestimating the impact it would have on the economy, on the financial markets. Because as I said, the train has left the station. But if the Fed tries to turn off those monetary spigots, what's going to end up getting derailed is going to be the economy. It's going to be the U.S. markets. So Manchin doesn't appreciate the degree to which this bubble economy depends on the air that the Fed is supplying. And if the Fed stops supplying that air, the whole thing is going to deflate. Save a little more this month. Chime checking accounts have features like fee-free overdraft up to $200 with SpotMe and no monthly fees. Open your account in minutes at chime.com slash goals24. Banking services and debit card provided by the Bancorp Bank N.A. or Stride Bank N.A. members FDIC. SpotMe eligibility requirements and overdraft limits apply. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. But getting back to these huge increases in consumer credit, whenever you see that, Americans borrowing a lot of money and spending it, Another thing that you immediately start to think about is, okay, well, that means that the trade deficit is also going to be exploding to record highs because if Americans are borrowing record amounts of money and spending it, what are they buying? Well, they're buying stuff that was imported. And how do you know that it was imported? Because almost all the stuff that we buy is imported. I mean, we consume services that are provided locally, but when we go into the market and buy goods, and a lot of Americans are buying goods with this borrowed money. And it's not just that they're buying goods with the money they're getting from the government. That's not even enough. They're going out and borrowing additional money and they're spending that. And in fact, that was confirmed when we got the release on Thursday of the trade deficit. I had spoke on the podcast uh, recently about the merchandise trade deficit that had shot up to a record high. Well, this is the overall trade deficit, which includes our surplus in services. So this is the unified deficit, and this is the main number that everybody focuses on. And the expectation was for an increase in the trade deficit to $74 billion. And that would have followed the $71.2 billion in May, which, by the way, was revised slightly lower. So uh, May's deficit was actually $71 billion. But instead of coming in at $74 billion, we came in at $75.7 billion. Not only is that higher than expected, not only does that beat the upper range of expectations, but that is an all-time record high. We have never had a monthly trade deficit as large as this one. And I think we beat the record that was set earlier this year. I think maybe it was February. So we had recently set a record for a large trade deficit. And now we just beat that record in June. And based on the consumer credit numbers that just came out again for June, I'm sure that July's trade deficit is going to be even bigger than June's because a lot of this borrowed money is being spent again on imports. So both of these things are on autopilot. But there's a couple of other reasons that Americans are able to spend like drunken sailors. Don't want to uh, insult drunken sailors. In addition to all the money that the Fed is printing and that the U.S. government is doling out, in addition to all the money that Americans are borrowing, you also have two other sources of income that are temporarily boosting consumer spending and making America's bubble economy much bigger. One of them is the fact that there is a moratorium on payments on student loans. So people who have student loans, and there's a lot of Americans that have student loans, 
Ever since the pandemic started, not only has interest been suspended on any unpaid amounts, but there is no longer a requirement to make any payments whatsoever. So your entire student loan has been paused and you don't have to make any payments at all. Now, what happened on Friday was that Joe Biden decided to extend that until January of 2022. So, you know, we were getting close to the can and so we gave it another kick. Why are we extending that emergency program? This started during the height of COVID. Everybody was locked down. Trump signed this thing, but it was like, okay, let's just temporarily pause these student loans until we figure out what's going to happen. I mean, we don't want to make people who have no jobs uh, have to pay their student loans. But the problem is not everybody who has a student loan lost their job. I mean, the vast majority of people did not lose their jobs. I mean, we had a big increase in unemployment, but most people kept their jobs. And you know, the people who did lose their jobs, a lot of those people, probably the majority, ended up earning more money in unemployment benefits than they earned in wages. So if they were earning more money on unemployment, why couldn't they have used some of those unemployment benefits to pay their student loans? After all, they had more money being unemployed than when they had a job. And so if they had to make student loan payments when they had a job, after they got a raise by being unemployed, why did they say, hey, you don't have to make these payments at all? Well, the result of all of these people who were employed or who were earning more money unemployed, not having to pay or make any of their student loan payments was basically like a huge pay raise or the equivalent of a tax cut. So all these people with student loans now have an increase in their disposable income because it's not like they're setting aside any money to pay the student loans in the future. Why? There's not going to be a balloon payment or anything. It's just that all of a sudden you're going to have to start paying again. But in the meantime, you have a holiday and you can take all the money that you otherwise would have sent to the government or to some lender to repay your loan. And now you have extra money to buy more stuff. Right? That's another reason why the trade deficit is going up, because people are taking the money that they would have used to make student loans payments, and instead they're buying imported products. Or they're also doing other things. Maybe they're spending money on vacations or they're doing some home remodeling or whatever they're doing. People now have all this income that they used to send to the government, and now they get to keep it. And now Biden has extended that moratorium through the end of the year. Why is he doing that? What is the possible justification when we have a 5.4% unemployment rate? We supposedly have this strong economy that they want to brag about. So why do we need to continuously supply this lifeline that was intended to help out in an emergency when people with student loans were drowning? And now that they're safe on dry land, in theory, why are we doing this? Again, what Biden wants to do is extend the phony consumption because he does not want to take away the pay increase. Because the minute people have to start making their student loan payments again, that is effectively a tax hike. And it's a tax hike on the people who are spending all this money that is driving the big increase in GDP that is a function of consumer spending and that is driving the gain in jobs in the service sector, which would not be in existence, but for the fact that people are spending money that they don't have. The other big stimulus that is helping people to buy stuff with money they don't have is the eviction moratorium. Now, the eviction moratorium was again enacted during COVID and it was a CDC regulation, which actually made the whole thing extra unconstitutional. But the CDC said that we're not going to allow people to get evicted during a pandemic because we don't want all these people on the streets spreading COVID. So the whole theory behind the eviction moratorium wasn't that, hey, you know, we need to help out the tenants. We just need to protect society from the diseases that these homeless people might be out there spreading. So we need people to stay in their homes and therefore the landlords can't evict people where they're going to become a public health threat. Now, when the CDC did this, right, it is not a moratorium on paying rent. Every tenant still owes the rent. This is not like the student loan pause where, you know, everything is on pause. 
The rents are not on pause. You still have to pay your rent. And so every month that somebody is living in an apartment and not paying their rent, that rent is still owed to the landlord. What the CDC did is said that the landlords can't do anything about it. You can't kick your tenant out for not paying the rent. Now, of course, effectively, when the CDC did that, a lot of people took advantage of the fact that the landlord can't kick them out for not paying rent and decided to stop paying rent. Because after all, what is the only reason that a lot of people pay their rent? Because if they don't, they're going to get kicked out. And so to avoid being kicked out of their apartment, they pay their rent. But once the government said, hey, if you stop paying your rent, you can't be kicked out. Well, a lot of people just said, okay, well, then I'm not going to pay my rent. And I'm just going to stay here for as long as this uh, moratorium lasts. And of course, assuming the government eventually lifts this moratorium, Probably what people are thinking is, okay, well, then I'll just start paying my rent at that point. I don't think anybody expects to have to pay all the back rent that they missed. In fact, I don't think any of these tenants who are not paying their rent are just saving all those rental payments so that they can make them in one big lump sum once the moratorium ends. I think all of these tenants who are not paying their rent are using that money to buy other things instead. They're buying new cars. They're buying maybe new furniture for the apartment that they're living in rent-free. They're buying uh, consumer electronics. All of this extra spending is what's goosing the economy. It's part of the GDP, right? It's part of all these numbers that we're seeing because this represents a pay increase or a tax cut. And the opposite, again, will happen if the moratorium ends, because now a lot of people who are not paying rent are going to have to start paying rent, and then they're going to have to stop buying all the things that they have been buying with the money that they haven't been using for rent. But it's a lot more than that. This eviction moratorium is going to do tremendous damage to the supply of lower-income housing. And as soon as the eviction moratorium ends, you're going to see a huge increase in rents, certainly in certain segments of the market, even more so than we've already seen, which is going to further pressure the consumer price index because of the large percentage of rents. Now, again, they use owner's equivalent rents, so it may not have as big an impact as it should if they used actual rents. But at some point, owner's equivalent rents are going to have to reflect the surge in actual rents. And that surge is going to accelerate when this eviction moratorium is over. You know, first of all, on the constitutionality of this eviction moratorium, the Supreme Court actually ruled, it was a narrow decision, five to four, but the Supreme Court ruled that it is unconstitutional. Now, the Supreme Court actually, I think, was wrong in the way they summed it up because they said it's unconstitutional because it was done by legislation from the CDC. According to the Supreme Court, if you want to deprive people of property without just compensation, that the government has to pass an act of Congress. Well, they're wrong. This eviction moratorium would have been unconstitutional even if it was voted by Congress and signed by the President of the United States. The fact that it was imposed just by decree from the CDC just adds an extra layer of unconstitutionality. But there is no way for the U.S. government to do this constitutionally unless they want to pay the landlords. See, if you look at the Fifth Amendment to the Constitution, part of the Fifth Amendment says that the government shall not deprive people of private property for public use without just compensation. And I already described why the eviction moratorium was imposed. It was imposed for the public health. It was to benefit everybody. It wasn't just to benefit the people who were going to be evicted. It was to benefit society because we didn't want those people out on the streets infecting other people with COVID. So it was a natural emergency to try to contain the spread of COVID that we said, hey, if you own any property, you can't evict your tenants. Once we did that, now the tenants no longer had to pay rent. This represents a constitutional taking of property because these residential housing units were private property. 
And the return on that private property is rent. Somebody buys property, the value of the property is the rental income. You know, when you own property, you have other expenses. Some of the landlords have mortgages because they've borrowed money to buy their rental houses, but they also have property taxes, they have maintenance, they have other costs. Those costs are offset by the revenue from the rent. But if you deprive the landlord of his rental revenue by telling the tenant that you can't get evicted if you stop making payments, you're basically depriving people of their property. Now, if the government wants to do that, for the national benefit, for a public health emergency, if they want to take private property, they need to compensate the owner. So the only way to have eviction moratorium constitutional would be for the U.S. government to replace any of the income that the landlords lost as a result of their inability to evict their deadbeat tenants. They did not do that, so this whole thing is unconstitutional. But again, you know, expecting the Supreme Court to really enforce the Constitution is something I've long since given up hope for. But one of the crazy things about it is despite the fact that the Supreme Court said that it was unconstitutional, Biden decided to extend it anyway. Think about the hypocrisy of that, because one of the big criticisms that Biden and Democrats had for former President Trump was that he didn't care about the Constitution, he didn't abide by the Constitution. Well, the Constitution says that if the Supreme Court says something is unconstitutional, it's unconstitutional. So Biden is knowingly imposing a requirement that has already been ruled unconstitutional, and he's doing it anyway because he's saying, well, it's going to take a long time before the courts get around to throwing it out. So even though I know this is unconstitutional, I am going to do it anyway. Well, what is that? I mean, how could you say that Donald Trump didn't care about the Constitution when you yourself clearly don't care about the Constitution because you're willing to do something that is unconstitutional? But the other aspect of this that I want to talk about is not just the legal aspect, but the economic consequences of this eviction moratorium. Because a lot of people just don't appreciate what is going to happen here. They just think, well, when the moratorium is over... The people who have not been paying rent all these months, well, they'll just start paying rent again and their landlords will just be happy to now be getting some cash flow. That's not the way it's going to go down. What's going to happen is a lot of the people who have not been evicted because they stopped paying their rent, they are going to get evicted as soon as the landlords are able to do it. It's not going to be a function of whether or not they can resume paying rent. The landlords aren't going to care because remember, all of the people who haven't been paying rent for the past year, they owe all that money. And if they don't pay the landlord all that back rent, the landlord has a legal right to evict them. Even if they resume paying their current rent, if they don't make the landlord whole, the landlord legally can evict them. And that is exactly what the landlord is going to do. Why would a landlord want to allow a deadbeat tenant to remain in his property? Because first of all, The landlords now know that this is a precedent. What if the Delta variant gets worse or some other disease comes and there's another eviction moratorium imposed? Why do you want to have as a tenant in your property somebody who has already showed you that they will take advantage of any kind of eviction moratorium by not paying rent? So if you have a tenant who has not been paying rent and has been taking advantage of this system, you want to get rid of that tenant as soon as you can. You're not just going to you know, let bygones be bygones and take a chance on re-renting. You're going to want to get rid of that tenant as soon as you have the chance because you may never have the chance again because you never know when another eviction moratorium may be imposed. So a lot of these people are going to get pushed out of their rental units. And now they're going to have to find some other landlord dumb enough to rent them a unit. Now, a lot of these other landlords then are going to start raising their rents. They're going to do credit checks. They're going to see, oh, here's a guy that was evicted from his prior landlord for back rent. Do I really want this guy as a tenant? It's going to be very hard for a lot of these people to find landlords willing to rent them property. And to the extent that they will, it's going to be at a much, much higher price. And also a lot of these rental properties that are going to be vacant because the deadbeat tenants are going to get kicked out 
even though some of them may ultimately return to the rental market where the landlords are going to be looking for different tenants that hopefully won't take advantage of an eviction moratorium, a lot of these units are probably going to require some maintenance, some repairs. And so they could be off the market for six months or a year, maybe more, considering how long it takes to do repairs now. Everything is so backed up. So a lot of these units could be off the market for a long time. But I also think a lot of these units are going to end up being for sale. I think a lot of these small landlords are just going to throw in the towel on being landlords because the U.S. government has significantly increased the risk of being a landlord because now anybody who owns rental property has to live with the risk that at any moment the government can pass an eviction moratorium and meaning whichever tenants happen to be in your unit can stay there indefinitely without paying you rent. I think it's too risky to be a landlord. I think a lot of people are going to decide, you know what? I'm just going to take advantage of the strength in the housing market, and I'm just going to sell these units. So if you had a rental house, you're just going to put the house on the market so somebody can buy it. Maybe if you had an apartment, I don't know if you could try to turn it into a condominium or maybe an office or something else. But I think a lot of people are just going to stop renting. Maybe some people had duplexes where they rented out half of the unit. I think a lot of those people are just going to decide, you know, it's not even worth it. I'm just going to keep the unit for myself. Maybe I'll Airbnb it and get some short-term rental, but I am not going to have a long-term tenant that is going to be able to stay there indefinitely and not pay me rent. So I think you're going to see a huge reduction in the supply of rental housing that is available on the market, particularly in the lower end. So you're going to see a reduction of supply of rental units. At the same time, there's going to be a lot of evicted people who are looking to rent. This is going to put even more upward pressure on rents. Of course, then at some point, the politicians are going to complain that there's not enough housing. There's not enough low-income housing. Maybe the government needs to build it when the reason that There's not enough low-income housing is because the government has made it so risky and so dangerous to be in the business of providing low-income housing because the government doesn't give a damn about the constitutional rights of the landlords. And of course, this is all politics. Why do the politicians favor tenants over landlords? Because there are more of them. There are more people who are tenants than who are landlords. So if you're looking for votes, how do you get them? Do you make laws that favor the landlords or do you make laws that favor the tenants? Again, it's like that Willie Sutton quote, why do you rob banks? Willie said, well, that's where the money is. Well, why does the government impose or enact legislation that's favorable to tenants? Because that's where the votes are. But the point I wanted to make earlier was that when this eviction moratorium eventually ends, and it will end at some point, not only is this going to send rents rising sharply, but it is now going to result in a lot of people who are living rent-free now having to pay rent. And so now they're going to have to stop buying all the stuff that they were buying in the past when they didn't have to pay rent because rent is a big expense. For a lot of people, it could be 30, 40, 50% of your income goes to rent. Well, think about all these people that weren't paying any rent. That's like their income doubled because they no longer had to pay rent. So they're able to buy all sorts of things that they wouldn't be able to buy if they had to pay their rent. And all that spending are in all these numbers goosing the economy. So when people have to start paying rent again, that is a massive tax increase. That is going to have a huge effect on this bubble economy. And that is the main reason that the Biden administration wanted to kick this can down the road, because this is one can that they do not want to deal with. So we know that all of these inflationary policies are going to continue. And just the way the Biden administration wants to kick that can down the road on requiring people to make their student loan payments or requiring people to pay their rent, the Federal Reserve is going to continuously kick that can down the road when it comes to actually raising interest rates or actually tapering its asset purchase program. In fact, ironically, the Biden administration, and I'm not making this up, when addressing the fact that so many Americans now 
are citing inflation as their number one concern, right? Inflation is now a bigger problem in the minds of average Americans than is unemployment or any other aspect of the economy. So inflation is a problem. And the reason that Americans know inflation is a problem is because they're dealing with it. They're not talking about these numbers that the government reports, 5% inflation, 6% inflation. They are dealing with price increases that are much higher than that. That is the problem because they actually go to the store and they buy things and they see how much more they cost. And this is why inflation is such a big concern. And what the Biden administration is actually saying is that the best way to address the inflation problem is for the government to spend money on infrastructure because with infrastructure, we'll have a more productive economy and we'll be able to produce more goods adding to their supply and that will reduce their price. So in other words, Biden thinks the best way to have less inflation in the future is to have more inflation now because the only way to pay for this infrastructure spending, or at least the way they're proposing it, is to pay for it with the Federal Reserve printing money. Well, it's the Federal Reserve printing money that is the reason that prices are rising in the first place. So if we print even more money to pay for infrastructure, then prices are going to rise even more. And of course, the idea that government infrastructure spending is going to make the economy more productive and more efficient is nonsense because any resources that the government takes from the economy, however it's financed, come at the expense of private sector resources. So more government spending on infrastructure means less private sector investment on infrastructure. And the investments that the private sector makes are always going to be more efficient and more productive than the money the government spends. So even if they could get the money from infrastructure spending through legitimate taxation rather than the Fed printing money, it would still result in even higher prices because it would make the government less productive because money was being transferred from the private sector to the public sector. It just makes the problem worse when all the money to pay for government spending is printed into existence by the Federal Reserve. In fact, the same nonsense about how the best way to fight inflation is for the government to spend money. I was listening to an interview, and this is about a week old, so I didn't hear it until later, with uh, Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, otherwise known as AOC, otherwise known as the bartender. And she was being interviewed, and she was offering her explanation as to why we don't have to worry about inflation, right? That prices are not going up, according to AOC, because of inflation. She has her own explanation of why prices are going up. And according to AOC, it's got nothing to do with inflation. And so the Fed shouldn't worry about it. So she had two factors that she put her finger on as contributing to rising prices. One was a shortage of supply. She said, we just don't have enough supply. We don't have the infrastructure. We don't have the port capacity to handle all the stuff coming in. We don't produce enough stuff, right? We're not making enough stuff. So we don't have enough supply. That was part of the problem. So it's not inflation. It's just a supply problem. Then she said, the other problem is demand. She said, Americans have a lot of money. We're spending a lot of money. The economy is growing. People are going back to work. So people are spending money. And so that's a good thing. And so people are spending money and we have this demand going up. We don't have enough supply. So that's the problem, right? It's not inflation. We don't have to worry about inflation. It's just a situation of supply and demand. We don't have enough production. We have a lot of demand. And so it's not inflation. But of course, that is exactly inflation. That is what you have when you create inflation. Inflation creates fake demand. Real demand is created when you produce stuff and then you consume the stuff that you help produce. So your own demand is a function of your own ability to add to the supply. Fake demand is when you get money to spend that you didn't earn, right? You didn't actually help produce anything, yet you've got money to consume anyway, right? So when the government prints money and gives it out to people, the demand curve shifts because now everybody has more money. But what we don't have is more supply because while the government can create money to spend, the government doesn't create goods to buy. So whenever you have an inflation problem, you simultaneously have a supply problem because the supply can never keep up with the phony demand because the people who have the money to spend didn't aid in the creation of more goods and services. See, if you have more money to spend because you help produce more goods and services, then the supply is there to meet the demand. But if you just sit on your butt 
at home collecting unemployment benefits and you do nothing to increase the supply, but the government hands you money anyway, then you've got all this demand and you don't have supply. And so you have inflation. So the factors that AOC was talking about, that is inflation. She is confirming the fact that we have an inflation problem. And her solution, which is for the government to spend even more money that is created by the Federal Reserve, will simply throw gasoline on the inflation fire that she claims doesn't even exist. But getting back to the gold and silver sell-off that we had on Friday, a lot of this started on Wednesday when we initially had a pretty big rally in gold and silver that followed the weaker than expected ADP jobs number that I already mentioned at the beginning of the podcast. And so at that point, you had about a 20, 21, 22 dollar rally in the price of gold. You had a 40 cent or so rally in the price of silver. And that entire rally evaporated again because the program traders reacted to some news releases that were interpreted as being bullish for the dollar and bearish for gold because somehow they meant that the Federal Reserve was likely to fight inflation by raising interest rates or shrinking its balance sheet when they're going to do neither. Yes, they will talk about it, but they're not going to actually do it. The two things that reversed that rally, one was the ISM number for July, which came in hotter than expected. The consensus was for 60.4, and we ended up with 64.1. But what was really the number I think that the markets were keying off of was not the level of the ISM, but the prices paid number, because that number showed prices rising at the fastest pace since 2005. And in fact, if you look at a chart of that prices paid number, we are about to head into uncharted territory. I think we're gonna blow through that 2005 level for price increases. And so that number, I think, really started the reversal in the gold market. But what really accelerated it were comments from Fed Chairman Richard Clarita, because he made a speech And he mentioned that he thought that we could get the first rate hike, meaning rates moving from zero at the end of 2022, and that the rate normalization process could begin in 2023. And also, I think if we start raising interest rates or normalizing interest rates in 2023, then probably sometime before 2023, the Fed would have started the process of tapering its asset purchase. And that's all it took, right? One comment from one Fed official that at some distant point in the future, the Fed might start lifting interest rates from zero. And all of a sudden, the entire gold rally evaporated. We got a rally in the dollar. None of the people who are trading off of this nonsense are stopping to think about what they're actually trading off of. Because if Clarita is right, and the Fed does not start raising rates really until 2023, Imagine how high inflation is going to be by then, because if the Fed keeps its foot on the monetary pedal all the way until then by keeping interest rates at zero, how much worse is the inflation problem going to be? Obviously, today's inflation is going to be a lot higher tomorrow if we have another year or two of 0% interest rates. That's another year or two where this fire can get a lot bigger. It's going to gain a lot more power because nobody is putting it out. And so by the time January 2023 rolls around, a quarter point rate hike, a half a point rate hike, that's spitting in the ocean. The inflation problem is going to be so much worse. What nobody seems to understand is that you can't fight a roaring inflation fire with a water gun, right? They're going to need helicopters dumping water on this roaring fire. And they're not going to get it. It is impossible. So all this talk about whether the Fed is going to start raising rates in the future, whether they're going to start tapering their asset purchases, ignores the elephant in the room, which is how big the inflation problem already is because they've been in denial for so long. And the fact that efforts that may have worked in the past 
to put out a smaller fire can't possibly work to put out this inferno. And people still don't understand the degree to which everything we're experiencing in the economy is a function of this bubble, of these artificially low interest rates and QE. And there's no way that the Federal Reserve can take away these supports and the economy not implode. And since the Fed won't let the economy implode, won't let the market implode, they're never going to actually do what they're talking about doing. And at some point, the markets are going to figure this out. And then you're going to get a big drop in the dollar and you're going to get a huge rise in the price of gold. In the meantime, don't worry that we've got it wrong or that gold is no longer an inflation hedge, which is something that the Bitcoin people want to point to. You know, they're looking at the big rally that we had in Bitcoin on Friday. I think the spark for the Bitcoin rally was the gold sell-off because gold sold off before Bitcoin did anything. Bitcoin was still, I think, around high 40,000, just under 41,000 before gold sold off. Actually, I think 42,000 is a significant level for Bitcoin. So if Bitcoin can sustain this move above 42,000, then I think a bigger move up could happen before ultimately rolling over. But if it can't, if we fall back below 42,000, my guess is the next big move is down. And in fact, I think the next time we break below 30,000, we may be below 30,000 for good. As I am recording this podcast, we're around 43,500 and change. Actually, I think 42,000 is a significant level for Bitcoin. So if Bitcoin can sustain this move above 42,000, then I think a bigger move up could happen before ultimately rolling over. But if it can't, if we fall back below 42,000, my guess is the next big move is down. And in fact, I think the next time we break below 30,000, we may be below 30,000 for good. Earlier this morning, Bitcoin got to 44,600 and something. So we had a huge rally in Bitcoin. And a lot of the Bitcoin guys are very excited about this because, hey, Bitcoin is rallying and gold is selling off. So that proves that Bitcoin is a better safe haven. It's a better inflation hedge. It actually proves the opposite of that. Because if Bitcoin really were perceived as an inflation hedge, as an alternative to the dollar, it would be selling off like gold. Because the reason that gold is going down is because these traders believe the Fed's going to raise interest rates and fight inflation. That's going to be good for the dollar. Therefore, it's bad for dollar alternatives. It's bad for safe havens or stores of value. The fact that Bitcoin is not going down in that environment is more proof that it's got nothing to do with inflation or a store of value or an anti-dollar play. Bitcoin is just purely a speculative token. It marches to the beat of its own drum. It's got nothing to do with purchasing power or inflation or being a store of value. And if Bitcoin doesn't sell off when gold sells off, it's not going to rally when gold rallies. Meaning if people aren't selling Bitcoin when they want to get rid of their inflation hedges and their stores of value, that means when everybody is rushing for an inflation hedge, when everybody figures out how bad the inflation problem is and that the Fed can't do anything about it and they're rushing to get out of paper into something real, they're not going to buy Bitcoin either. In fact, I was watching on CNBC, they were interviewing the CEO of Lyft. And the last question that was asked was whether or not Lyft had any plans to start accepting Bitcoin as a payment method, which, of course, a ridiculous question. I mean, why even ask that? But of course, it's obligatory. CNBC asks every CEO of every company that accepts payments if they're planning on accepting payments in Bitcoin. Now, the guy is trying not to be rude, right? He wants to be polite. And so he says, well, you know, we're always thinking about our customers and trying to give our customers the experience that they want. And so, sure, I mean, anything is potentially open for consideration. But of course, we have not done anything regarding Bitcoin. It's not on our radar right now. We're not thinking about it, right? Of course, we're not thinking about it. The customers don't care about paying in Bitcoin. In fact, the people who have Bitcoin, the last thing they want to do is use it for a lift ride. They're going to hold it for dear life. So nobody, even the people that have Bitcoin, want to use it to hire a lift car. Yet 
CNBC has to ask the question. And then the reason they're doing it is so later on, somebody could say, Lyft considering accepting payments in Bitcoin, which they're not doing at all. But of course, by getting the CEO to admit, well, you never know, it could happen. Now they've created the basis to try to hype it up by claiming that here's another company that's looking into accepting Bitcoin when it's not. In fact, CNBC continued to pump Bitcoin throughout the week. In fact, I was watching, they had somebody on CNBC who was talking about how you add Bitcoin to your retirement accounts and why you should put Bitcoin in your IRA. And instead of like questioning this guy on how irresponsible it is to encourage people to gamble on something so risky in the IRA, they basically were like, yeah, this seems like a good idea. This is a good way for people who haven't saved enough money to catch up on their savings by betting it all on Bitcoin and just gambling with their IRA money. This is what you expect from CNBC. In fact, CNBC was also a major factor in the Robinhood rally that took place since my last podcast. You know, shares of Robinhood went all the way up to $65 per share Remember, the IPO price was 38. We initially sold off, but then we had this huge rally. The stock basically doubled. We ended up settling the week at 55. We were up about 8% on Friday. There was a huge drop on Thursday uh, because insiders filed to sell pretty much all the shares of the company. The reason it rallied back on Friday is because they put those sales on hold pending regulatory approval. But obviously, those sales are coming. But Kramer all day long, was pumping the stock, talking about how the price was justified. And when it was way up there, he said, well, you know, maybe you should take a little off the table if you have big profits. But he was congratulating all the people who were buying Robinhood and basically singing the praises of the company. And it's a big disruptor. And he says, you know, don't uh, question the valuation because he was saying, we don't even know what Robinhood is going to end up being because it's going to disrupt everything. He said that it's like, Amazon in the early days, because, you know, when people were first talking about Amazon and they looked at its market cap and they said, well, even if they sold all the books in the world, it's still overpriced because they had no idea what Amazon would eventually become, because obviously it's far more than just a bookstore. Kramer was basically saying the same thing was going to happen to Robinhood. Who knows what this company is going to do? He was saying that they should use their stock to make more acquisitions and if they just buy more companies, then the stock will go up even more. He was talking about how Square bought Afterpay. And in fact, I think one of the reasons, and this is ironic, as I spoke about it on my last podcast, I think there were some rumors that Robinhood was going to get into the pay later business and, and do exactly what I said was going to happen on my last podcast. But this is the kind of market that we have. We have a kind of market where stocks like Robinhood that really disrupted nothing. I mean, what did Robinhood do? They gave away free commissions. Okay, they told people you can trade for free, and so they got a lot of customers. Well, what those customers don't realize is how expensive all those free trades are because the real customers are the hedge funds that are buying the order flow. Meanwhile, where are Robinhood customers getting their money? They're getting their money, in many cases, from government stimulus checks. They're able to borrow money to trade on leverage. All of this is temporary. And yes, a lot of other companies, a lot of other brokerage firms have gone to zero commissions to compete with Robinhood. But once Robinhood is out of business, and I do expect Robinhood to eventually go bankrupt, I do think a lot of these other companies that have been trading for zero commission are going to reimpose commissions. I think you're going to see a consolidation in this industry because once interest rates eventually go up, these money losing business models are going to come to an end. I mean, this is another thing that is a function of all the cheap money that the Fed has been creating. It has enabled brokerage firms to offer free commissions because they're able to make their money through other ways. But once those other avenues are closed and they have to go back to their customers, their actual customers who are trading stocks to make money, well, clearly they're going to have to raise their commissions, which is just going to be another price hike that Americans are going to be dealing with, along with all the other price hikes that are coming. So don't get frustrated by the fact that gold and silver sold off. We're doing the right thing 
by buying them. We're getting a gift from the markets. You've got so many people that do not understand the dynamic. You've got so many people that got this thing wrong. And that is why there is such an opportunity for profit. It's when so many people are wrong that the market gives you the most opportunity to make money when all those people are proven wrong, right? It's the same thing that happened with the subprime trade. The reason that so few people made so much money shorting subprime is because so many people were on the other side of the trade. That created the disparity where you could make a tremendous amount of money because you were betting against this massive hurt. And that's exactly the situation we have now, only worse. You have so many people that are completely confused, that have got this thing 100% wrong when it comes to inflation and the Fed's ability to control it, and therefore they don't want to own gold. They want to own all these hyped-up momentum stocks. They don't want to own companies that actually produce stuff and generate income. They want to own companies that produce nothing and generate hype, and that's where they're being rewarded. But all those rewards are going to go away. All these paper profits are going to evaporate, whether it happens in real terms or adjusted for inflation. That is inevitable. And in the meantime, just take advantage of the mistakes other people are making. Use these sell-offs in gold and silver as an opportunity to buy more. Use the rally in the dollar as an opportunity to get rid of more dollars and to accumulate more quality non-U.S. companies that are paying good non-dollar dividends. So again, talk to the representatives at Euro-Pacific Capital, at Euro-Pacific Asset Management. Talk to the people at Shift Gold about adding more physical gold and silver to your portfolio. And rather than putting your IRAs into Bitcoin, you should get your IRAs out of fiat, whether it's fiat currency or fiat cryptocurrency and buy real assets. You can have an IRA that is invested in good quality value non-U.S. stocks that are actually making the stuff that people are consuming that have the ability to raise prices as a result of inflation and pass those higher earnings to you in the form of higher dividends. And when you own these dividend paying foreign stocks, you also own all of their resources. You own the plant and equipment. You own their reserves. You own real things. You don't own paper. And that's what you want. Inflation is a massive transfer of wealth from paper creditors to real equity owners. And so that's what you want to be. But you want to recognize that where you want to be an equity owner is outside the United States, not inside. And you want to make sure that your income streams are not coming in U.S. dollars. And to the extent that you want to save, you don't want to save in any fiat currency. You want to save in gold and silver. 